Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode, the 276th, in fact, since I started doing this popular family program 11 years ago. Still going strong since June 2010. Thanks to all my peoples who have been with me since I hung out my shingle 11 years ago, and to everyone else who managed to find me through the years. Hey, listen, before we get started, let me put in a quick plug for my new podcast show, Already being called one of the best tea history shows of 2021. You can find it in all the same places where you can find the CHP or at the teacup.media website, the Tea History Podcast. Give it a shot. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get right on it. If you drove down to Wuhotsu Street in Chengdu and stood before the tomb of Liu Bei, pretty much for about 40, 50 miles in every direction... Buried underneath you are layers and layers of artifacts and tombs from an ancient civilization that went back to times that even preceded the Shang Dynasty. There's about 15 million people now living on top of what is believed to be the ancient kingdom of Shu. And this many people crowding above a buried prehistoric civilization, as you could imagine, it's limited the degree to which scientists and archaeologists can freely excavate and find out more about who these people were who long preceded them to this great city in China. Nonetheless, it's starting to happen with more regularity that whenever construction workers or farmers in and around Chengdu start digging in the ground, they stumble into some tomb or a hoard of jade and bronze objects from three, four thousand years ago. In this episode, I'd like to introduce some of the amazing discoveries that have been made on the Chengdu Plain since the last century, and what they mean to the traditional narrative of ancient Chinese history that developed in the north along the Yellow, Wei, and Huai rivers and all their many tributaries. What inspired me to cover this subject, and besides so many requests over the years, was the recent article in the May 11th Washington Post written by Harvard Professor of Archaeology Rowan K. Flad. The article was titled, It's a Golden Age for Chinese Archaeology and the West is Ignoring It. A number of CHP listeners forwarded that article to me. Dr. Flad's CV is as long as a James Michener novel, and he's a very accomplished archaeologist, quite a respected scholar. His contention was that Here in the West, or at least where I hang my hat, in the beautiful country, we made a big deal about the recent discovery of the 3,000-year-old lost golden city near Luxor, Egypt. Luxor is where ancient Thebes was located in the Temple of Karnak and the Valley of the Kings. And this so-called lost golden city was hailed as the second most important archaeological discovery since the tomb of Tutankhamun. Now, Two weeks prior to this amazing discovery that was announced in Egypt, there was another great and spectacular find at the Sanxingdui archaeological site north of Chengdu in the city of Guanghan. The Sichuan Cultural Relics and Archaeology Research Institute were proud to announce that in October 2019, six new sacrificial pits were discovered at the Sanxingdui site, bringing the total to eight. Two were found in 1986, and now these six. And beginning in March 2021, some of the artifacts being removed from a few of these newly discovered pits are now being seen for the first time 
in more than 3,000 years. Even as I began working on this episode, new discoveries were coming almost weekly. Dr. Flad pointed out that in the West, there was quite a lot of hoopla made about the find in Egypt. But the recent finds at Sanxingdui barely even caused a blip on the radar. And as far as all the excitement about Egypt, he wrote that, quote, Chinese archaeology, in contrast, is viewed as unrelated to American civilization. But that view should be rethought for multiple reasons. First, roughly 6% of Americans identify as ethnically Asian. That population is part of the American story, and therefore so is the history of civilization in Eastern Asia. Just as importantly, all ancient civilizations are part of human history and deserve to be studied and discussed on their own merits, not on their geographical or supposed cultural connection to the Greece-Rome-Europe lineage that long dominated the study of history in the West, end quote. So let's take a look at what this is all about and focus on a lesser-known part of Chinese history. Our episode today concerns the kingdom of Shu. Most people who have studied Chinese history know this Shu character stands for all things Sichuan. But the history of Shu is not a very well-known history, primarily because these people down in Sichuan didn't have a writing system and left no written records of who they were and what they were all about. And for this main reason, although archaeologists are pretty sure what they're pulling from the ground at San Xingdui are Shu artifacts, no one can say with absolute certainty that this is the same Shu kingdom that the ancients spoke about in the early Chinese histories. What we'll look at this time is the story of Baodun culture, San Xingdui, Jinsha, and the so-called tombs of boat-shaped coffins. And this entire story takes place on the Chengdu Plain, part of the massive Sichuan Basin, the Sichuan Pandi. I mentioned last time in the uh, history of Henan about the central plain that the Yellow River flows through and how Chinese civilization evolved along its many tributaries. The Sichuan Basin well, is a much smaller plain, but at 88,000 square miles, it's it's still the size of Serbia, or the land of 10,000 lakes, good old Minnesota. Though several of China's 55 ethnic minorities live in Sichuan, 95% of the population are Han Chinese, and in this respect, this province isn't any different from most others. But 3,000 and more years ago, it wasn't like this. What was happening in and around Chengdu was a different world from what was happening along the Yellow River, where the traditional historical narrative says was where China began, and that Chinese civilization spread from the Yellow River Valley in the north to the south of China. Prior to the discovery of San Xingdui in 1986-87, the extent of what historians knew about ancient Sichuan was limited to the exiguous amount of info gleaned from the Chronicles of Huayang, the Huayang Guochi, written during the Jin in the 4th century, and the other document is the Shu Wang Banqi, the biographies of the Shu kings, written during the Han. Both texts mention these Shu and Ba states. In these earliest Chinese texts that write about these Shu kings, they mention the founder named Tan Chong, and the kings or 
clan leaders and their dynasties who followed Tan Chong were also mentioned in these ancient works as Bo Guan, Yu Fu, Du Yu, and Kai Ming. And this final Kai Ming dynasty or clan were the ones in power when the end came for Shu in 316 BCE. Tan Chong is called the first king of Shu and the legendary creator of silk and sericulture. The first character of his name, Tan, means silkworm. There are legendary stories about Tan Chong fighting against the forces of the last king of Xia, the infamous Jie, who was overthrown in 1600 BCE. But these mentions of Tan Chong from 2,000 years ago, they don't say much. Although it began its existence much earlier, Shu thrived during the Bronze Age dynasties of the Shang and Zhou, and in the ancient writings, Tan Chong is mentioned as this ruler who had these protruding eyes. And you can see this in a number of artifacts found at San Xingdui with these sculptured masks thought to be this Shu founder. The eyes protrude from the sockets in an exaggerated way, like two cylinders jutting out from the eye sockets. When archaeologists beheld this mask for the first time, they believed this must have been Tan Chong. What was happening down in Shu was completely separate from what was going on in northern China, and that was immediately apparent beginning in 1986-1987, when all these bronze figures and masks started being pulled from the ground just north of Chengdu in the city of Guanghan. Our story today concerns all the discoveries made over the past 35 years that have been generally divided up into four culture periods, Baodun, San Xingdui, Shi'erqiao, and Shang Wangjiaguai. The great discoveries that we'll mainly focus on were at San Xingdui in 1986-87, at Jinsha in 2001, and again, most recently, at San Xingdui. First came Baodun culture. This ran from approximately 2800 to 2000 BCE, basically concurrent with Longshan culture up north. I mentioned Longshan culture in that recent Henan Part 1 episode. Since 1995, 10 Baodun settlements have been discovered along the Min River, a tributary of the Yangtze. These settlements, with their protective walls, were located in the southwest part of Chengdu, 10 to 30 kilometers apart. And though these are all different excavation sites, collectively, they are known as Baodun culture. It's believed this section of the city was where the first agricultural communities existed on the Chengdu Plain. No one's sure about the origin of these people who lived during Baodun culture, but this is where these early Neolithic people from 4,000 years ago lived and left behind evidence of their civilization. These people at Baodun are considered the original occupants of Chengdu and the progenitors of San Xingdui, or, as they say in the biz, these people who lived during this time of Baodun culture were directly ancestral to what was happening at San Xingdui and later on at Jinsha. Many artifacts have been unearthed, but again, without any written record or even a unambiguous mention about these people in the records of surrounding cultures and states, all we can do is speculate and go with whatever archaeologists and anthropologists can tell us. More remains unknown than known. 
And in some ways, we know more about the surface of the planet Mars than we do of this millennia-old civilization. Baodun culture was followed by the earliest phase of Sanxingdui culture that ran from about 1700 to 1200 BCE. That time period, 1700 to 1200 BCE, is concurrent with the fall of the Xia to mid-Shang. We'll get to what happened after 1200 BCE in a minute. Sanxingdui means three star mounds. These three grassy mounds were found in Guanghan, which, depending on traffic, is about eh, one hour drive north from downtown Chengdu. The story of Sanxingdui began in 1929, just south of the Jian River in Yueliangwan, when some farmer named Yan Daocheng was repairing some sewer ditch near his house and chanced upon all these jade artifacts. And just as it was with the oracle bones at Anyang in the late 1800s, no one knew yet what the significance of this find was. And these 300 to 400 items dug out by Farmer Yen were sold to antique dealers who also weren't sure what they were. After all, such an ancient land as China, it's not uncommon to find all these ancient relics and During the last century, many of these objects made their way to collections around the world, to both private and museum collections. But in 1920 and into the 1930s, with the major discoveries at Sanxingdui far in the future, collectors and museums weren't quite sure what to make of these strange-looking stone statues and jades. They looked nothing like what was commonly seen from the Central Plain in China. In 1934, an attempt at an organized excavation was made, but as we all know, the 1930s and 40s was a rough period in China, so nothing much happened until July to September 1986. It was then that the two sacrificial pits of Sanxingdui were discovered. Pit number one was discovered July 18, 1986, underneath the grounds of a Brick factory, it was quite a sensation. The contents of pit number one included 178 bronzes, 129 jade ritual objects, earthen pots, stone implements, elephant tusks, and seashells. There were also three cubic meters worth of burnt animal bones. Everything inside had been ritually burned and purposely destroyed by fire and other means. The conclusion has been made that these were two sacrificial pits and that their discovery opened the door into the religious world of these unknown people. Scientists and historians have wondered why was everything burned and smashed to smithereens. Anthropologists all have their theories, of course, but no one knows for sure. The second of two pits was discovered a month later, on August 14, 1986, Guangxu Emperor's birthday. This one, located some 20 or 30 meters from pit number one, had even more artifacts, 732 bronzes, 61 articles of gold, 486 of jade. There were also stone implements, 67 elephant tusks, and 4,600 seashells. It was quite a find. While many similarities were found between Sanxingdui objects and those of the Central Plain, Sanxingdui yielded up something else that, stylistically, was more intricate and refined than what had been found in Shang bronze artifacts. 
the style of the bronzes looked more Mayan or oceanic than what we're familiar with as far as Shang and Zhou era bronzes go. There were objects that looked familiar and others that were something new altogether. Just a couple weeks ago, the authorities in China announced the discovery of a 3,000-year-old bronze figure holding an exquisitely crafted zun adorned with dragon motifs on top of its head. The bronze statue at a height of 1.15 meters, or 3 feet 9 inches. A zun is a ritual wine vessel. The Zun was easy enough to identify, having seen those in museums and videos of the Shang and Zhou eras. But not this figure holding it. He would have been totally out of place up in Hunan or Shanxi. In all the books, websites, videos, and other media depicting the discoveries at Sanxingdui, there are maybe half a dozen or so superstars of the 1986-1987 Sanxingdui discovery. And they've become the icons of the discovery. One of these that sort of occupies the place of honor inside the Sanxingdui Museum was a four-meter-high bronze tree called the Divine Tree. It was discovered all smashed and broken apart, but it's been carefully reassembled. The tree had nine birds perched on its branches and solar designs. Another marquee discovery, perhaps the one that seems like the one relic that... Well, more than anything else, defines the spirit of this mysterious civilization. It's a 2.62 meter high bronze statue of a human. Again, with these abstract and exaggerated facial features that are one of the hallmarks of these bronze human figures, and these large alien-like eyes that dominated the face. The bronze mask with these unnatural-looking eyes protruding from the sockets, as I said, is believed to be the Shu founder, Tan Tsong. In studying everything removed from the two pits, archaeologists saw many similarities with what had been found in Shang ruins. Similar ritual weapons and vessels that looked familiar. Zun, wine vessels. Tsong, rectangular jade pieces. Bi, jade discs. Zhang, jade blades, and good dagger axes, all these kinds of artifacts associated with religious ceremonies, rituals, and sacrificial rites. These two civilizations, developing separately in what is today the PRC, appeared to be aware of each other, but historians have wondered, who got the bronze metallurgy technology from who? Scientists have determined the copper and tin used in these Sanxingdui bronzes was not local material. Did these people living in and around Chengdu bring this bronze crafting technology to the central plain? Or was it the other way around? Or perhaps even a third party who introduced bronze making to both independently? And what about these elephant tusks? The way they had been included in these sacrificial pits, it was obvious they were quite prized. You know, there was a time when elephants roamed the upper and middle reaches of the Yangtze River. Was this where these tusks came from? Or were the elephants already long gone? And if so, were these tusks traded or presented as tribute from others who live south of present-day Sichuan? That's one thing you could also conclude about this Shu civilization. They appear to have had contact with not only Shang, China, and Chu to the east— but also to the south of Sichuan, with Yunnan, with Myanmar, Laos, and perhaps even Vietnam. The seashells came from salt water and were not local. 
the same questions were asked. How did they get there? From the South China Sea or the Bay of Bengal? Wherever they came from, it all suggests possible relations with people who lived in these lands adjacent to Sichuan. There were silk fragments also discovered that showed they had some kind of sericulture going down there. The silk, like the bronzes and jades, were also part of religious rituals and ceremonies. Other textile fragments were unearthed too, but with the contents of these sacrificial pits burned in this ritualistic way they were, well, those were the first things to be destroyed. So again, the headlines to this discovery at Sanxingdui, a place that still has historians and archaeologists baffled in many ways, it isn't so much these amazing bronzes and jades. It was the confirmation that some kind of sophisticated culture and complex society was thriving down in this part of Sichuan at the same time that Chinese Huaxia culture was being born in the Xia and Shang dynasties. And whatever it was, it was developing separately, on its own, and it did not appear to share the same look and feel of what you typically see in Hunan. The Qinling mountain chain north of Sichuan was a formidable barrier and not so easily crossed. If you could manage to work your way north past this mountain chain with peaks in excess of 10 and 12,000 feet, you'd find yourself in Shanxi province, in the state of Qin. And there were other ways to get from the Chengdu plain to the north of China. Luoyang was only about 1,100 kilometers away, a month-long trek by foot. It's not unthinkable that someone might have accomplished this feat. In the centuries that followed the annexation of Shu by Qin in 316 BCE, the historians began hypothesizing from whence did these people come. During the Han Dynasty, Sima Qian had written that these Shu kings were descended from the Yellow Emperor. Like I said, these two early sources, the Chronicles of Huayang and the Biography of the Shu Kings, they say a lot, but reveal very little that can be accepted as anything except legend and what oral tradition said happened. The descriptions of Shu and these Shu kings read like so many of these pre-Han annals and chronicles. It's like looking at a skeleton and trying to make out the person it might have once been. Chu State was directly to the east of Shu. There was most certainly interaction with them, and there were some Chu influences on the art and markings of some items pulled from the two pits at Sanxingdui and later on at Jinsha. All of the archaeological evidence uncovered so far shows people were living in and around the Chengdu Plain for more than 4,000 and perhaps even 5,000 years ago. By 2000 BCE, we know people were organizing and forming groups and settling into this part of China, just as they were doing up in Hunan, Shanxi, Hebei, and Shanxi. One of the biggest mysteries about these two pits at Sanxingdui revolved around the question of why was it that one day, roughly around 1200 BCE, did the trail run cold? By all appearances, these people from over 3,000 years ago were seemingly either wiped out or just picked up and left for destination unknown to begin anew. And then in early 2001, archaeologists began to have a pretty good idea what happened 
after another major discovery was made at a place called Jinsha, right underneath the Qingyang district in the western part of Chengdu. And most of the artifacts found at this Jinsha site were very similar to what had been found at Sanxingdui and were dated to a later period. So Sanxingdui preceded whatever they had stumbled into at this Jinsha site. The appearance of the burial sites and the artifacts dug up were similar enough to lead archaeologists to believe that Jinsha was a continuation of the trail that went cold up at Sanxingdui. Whoever abandoned that Sanxingdui site and filled up those ceremonial pits with all those burned and shattered objects appeared to have moved southward to this new Jinsha site. The most accepted theory as to why they suddenly moved to this part of Chengdu is that there was some massive earthquake or cataclysm that caused landslides and enough natural violence to occur that rivers were blocked and the people living at the Sanxingdui site ended up losing their water supply, which was now flowing elsewhere. Zhou Dynasty records mention some major earthquake in 1099 BCE, which lends some credibility to this theory. As with Sanxingdui, this cluster of sites at Jinsha have no trace of any written records. So like with everything else associated with ancient Shu, there are a treasure trove of artifacts from religious, residential, and aristocratic parts of the site to study. But none of them could reveal much about the people who made them. What's been discovered at Jinsha so far leads archaeologists to conclude this period was a more prosperous one than at Sanxingdui. Starting here, around 1200 BCE, the beginning of what was known as Shiarqiao culture began. Shiarqiao means number 12 bridge. That's an east-west road that runs in north Chengdu, near where these Jinsha ruins were first discovered. The Jinsha discoveries, and they're spread out over several areas, not all in one place, well, they contained the same bronzes, jade, stone, wood, animal bones, lacquer, and pottery fragments seen before. The lion's share of items were jars, bottles, and vessels. The gold that was found was all foil that was used to gild these masks and statues of, presumably, gods or kings. The two most iconic objects from this Jinsha site is this round golden sunbird disc and the so-called smiling mask. And like with the objects uncovered to date from Sanxingdui, the face on this mask had these same large alien-like eyes. This gold sunbird disc, or Taiyang Shenyao, was the inspiration behind the design of the gorgeous brand-new Chengdu Tianfu Airport. This Jinsha site was dated to about the late Shang or early Zhou. The heyday of the Shu Bronze Age civilization appears to have followed the abandonment of Sanxingdui around 1200 BCE, and it's also believed with a fair degree of certainty that this area where Jinsha was located, western Chengdu, served as the Shu political and religious center. It's been determined that whatever began at Jinsha after Sanxingdui was later abandoned during the Warring States period of the Eastern Zhou. 
At the 25 Jinsha sites under excavation, they found residential areas, a religious section where sacrifices were carried out, as well as burial sites where more than 2,000 graves have been excavated so far. Unlike San Xingdui and the Neolithic Baodun culture, the Jinsha site appears to lack city walls. In 2007, they opened up a real nice museum to view the Jinsha treasures. It's built over the excavation site, so you can get to see the archaeologists at work. It also helps to control the inside climate and not cause too much of a shock to these artifacts that are seeing the light of day after 3,000 years. The Jinsha, or Shi'archiao culture, declined somewhat during the Warring States period. And the final culture that made up Shu civilization was called Shangwanjiaguai, that existed approximately 500 to 200 BCE. The ancient chronicles named two ethnic groups that existed down in Sichuan, the Shu and the Ba. Both places are mentioned in the Shang oracle bones. Shu, it's believed, had more contact with the Shang than Ba. I mentioned this in the Tea History podcast, that it was these people of Ba who had presented the Shang king with tribute of Tu. Tu, of course, being the ancient name for tea before it became known as Cha during the Tang. It's believed Ba was more of a confederation of tribes than one single political state. In 2000, during construction of some real estate project, another royal tomb was discovered right in downtown Chengdu. And this one was a little different from what had been uncovered at Sanxingdui and Jinsha. This tomb contained 17 coffins. And these coffins were not found in any tomb or sacrificial pit that had been excavated up to that time. These coffins were actually hollowed-out trees, and they look similar to canoes. So they were called boat-shaped coffins, or chuanguan. The contents of these coffins were filled with the usual funerary ritual objects found in similar royal tombs in the Chengdu area. They varied in length and width, as trees are wont to do, and some of these coffins were interred singly, and some tombs had multiple coffins. And much later, in 2017, another tomb was chanced upon in the northeast suburbs of Chengdu in a place called Qingbaijiang, where 200 of these boat-shaped coffins were found. And the next year, in 2018, in Pujiang County, an hour southwest of Chengdu, near Qionglai, another 60 of these boat-shaped coffins were discovered. And these tombs all appear to come from the Warring States period, 5th, to 3rd centuries BCE. It's believed that this burial custom of the boat-shaped coffins came from Ba State that was located east of Shu, around Chongqing. What happened was, Ba's next-door neighbor to the east was Chu, and Chu was one of the more pugnacious of the uh, warring states. And as they started to expand west, they began pushing the people of Ba out of their traditional lands in westernmost Hubei and eastern Sichuan into the direction of Shu. Although most of the objects found alongside the skeletal remains bear the same or similar markings found in other Shu tombs, these coffins had markings that were 
specific to Ba. In this period where Ba was pushed out of their traditional lands, presumably by Chu, and came to live among the people of Shu, is called the Ba Shu period. Again, approximately the 5th to the 4th century BCE, late Shu period. It appears these two peoples didn't join together as one. They both had their distinct culture, but they lived amongst each other, and Shu was clearly dominant. One of the telltale signs of Ba objects were these tiger markings, whereas Shu objects were heavy on birds, fish, and tortoise motifs. Ba relics were inscribed with tigers, so the calling card for Ba Shu culture would be these boat-shaped coffins with objects that also contain markings familiar to Shu culture. If only the dead could speak. This late in the game, Mooring States period, there was already plenty of cultural interaction happening between Shu, Chu, and other states to the east and north, and probably to the south as well, in Yunnan. The history of Shu came to a rather abrupt end beginning in 316 BCE with the Qin conquest. All lovers of the great Chinese Chengyu are saying Tan Xiao Shi Da or Yin Xiao Shi Da. If they listen to my Chinese sayings podcast episode, recall the backstory about those four characters and the conquest of Shu. King Huiwen of Qin and his military advisors, Sima Cuo and Zhang Yi, had a grand vision to conquer all the various states to the east of their Qin kingdom, mostly located in Shanxi province. As the saying goes, one of them proposed the idea that before they went and brought down these guys like Chu, Zhao, Wei, Qi, and Han, they had to start with easier meat like Shu. And as the legend goes, some envoy from King Huiwen went down to Shu to go check the place out. And this envoy told the Shu leader that the Qin king had all these valuable objects of gold, jade, and other magnificent treasures, that they wanted to present all these riches to the Shu ruler as tribute. And the pièce de résistance were these cattle made of stone that were completely stuffed inside with gold. But with the Qinling Mountains being such an obstacle, it was going to be too hard to transport these tribute items. So the leader of Shu, hot for these gifts, in cooperation with Qin, constructed the Shenyou Dao, or Stone Cattle Road, through the mountains. And in Shu, they believed, wrongly of course, that with this mountain pass built through the Qinling Range, it would be much easier for Qin to present their tribute gifts. And once this stone cattle road was completed, according to Master Liu Bu Wei's Liu Shi Chunqiu, rather than sending down all these tribute items via the stone cattle road, the Qin army came instead and conquered Shu in 316 BCE. And in that document, Liu Bu Wei wrote that because this Marquis of Shu was too avaricious and Tan Xiao Shi Da, coveted small things, he lost his whole state. This story behind this old Chinese saying may or may not be true, but one thing is certain, the Qin army came down and conquered this millennia-old civilization down in Sichuan. And after 316 BCE, all these lands of the Chengdu Plain 
were folded into the Qin state. And Ba State, who had actually provided some assistance to Qin in overthrowing Shu, were themselves taken down by Qin, and that was the end of Ba and Shu in Sichuan. And this future breadbasket of China down in Sichuan provided much-needed wealth, and most important of all, a massive food supply for the Qin that fortified them and allowed them to grow and become even more powerful. And so powerful did Qin become? In 221 BCE, they put away the last of the warring states and unified China under the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang, and the already quite sizable Chinese population north of the Yangtze River saw this land in Sichuan with all its rivers and plentiful farmland as a veritable paradise and land of opportunity. And they flooded in and in time took the place over. And whoever these Ba Shu people were, who left behind all these ancient relics China's archaeologists have uncovered since 1986, they disappeared in much the same way the Tokharians, Mayans, Aztecs, and Cahokia Indians disappeared. After being conquered, they lived on, but over time became part of a new thing. And whatever their culture, language, and way of life was, it was replaced during the Han and later dynasties with Chinese culture, albeit with certain Sichuan characteristics. One of the many good things the Qin Empire acquired from this conquest of Ba and Shu was tea and the pleasure of tea drinking. Tea cultivation began down in this part of China, in Yunnan and Sichuan. You'll see it starts to take off in China much quicker after the Qin conquest. Go check out my Tea History podcast if you want to hear more. I would say, after all my research... More is not known about these discoveries than is known. In fact, even Shu itself is a very big question mark. Were these discoveries in Sanxingdui and Jinsha part of Shu? Or perhaps some other polity? You know, the bottom line was that whoever these people were who filled those tombs with all those amazing statues, works of art, and ritual objects, they didn't develop their own writing system. And without that... There's little to go on except the legends and cryptic mentions of Shu and Ba in these two ancient texts, the Shu Wang Banji and Huayang Guozhi. If you ever get a chance to see these amazing artifacts, I suggest you not pass up the opportunity. I was fortunate to have had the chance back in March 2015 when the Bowers Museum hosted a long-running exhibition called China's Lost Civilization, The Mystery of Sanxingdui. And just by chance, the day I went, Dr. Agnes Xu Tang was there and gave a lecture on the archaeological aspects of the exhibition. She's called China's Lara Croft and was the host of that Mysteries of China program that ran on the History Channel Asia. Pretty amazing. The Sanxingdui Museum is located right where the number one and number two sacrificial pits are located in Guanghan, just north of Chengdu. And you can visit both museums, Sanxingdui and Jinsha, in one day if you start early. These are some of the hottest museums in China these days, especially after the most recent findings this year of already more than a thousand relics from the newly discovered six sacrificial pits at Sanxingdui. 
And archaeological tourism is also red hot in China as the people there learn more about themselves as each day brings new insight into the story of these Shu people. Longtime listener and super supporter of the CHP going back to practically the beginning, Mr. M.W. Cowden visited both museums and was kind enough to lend me all his photos from the Sanxingdui and Jinsha site museums. So go to my website at teacup.media and you'll see all these amazing statues, masks, and ritual objects. Thanks, Mr. C. And this leads us to the news that Dr. Rowan Flad, in that recent article about the most recent finds that received such short shrift in the West, for 33 years at the Sanxingdui site in Guanghan, only two sacrificial pits had been excavated. Now, to add to the richness of this discovery of pits, one and two, a third sacrificial pit was discovered in 2019, then five more were found in 2020, bringing the total up to eight. And every pit has anywhere from 10 to 15 strata being excavated. The older the artifacts, the lower the strata being studied. And the newer stuff, of course, being in the upper strata. Now, beginning in this year of 2021, all six of these new pits have yielded amazing new artifacts, almost weekly, and they're still in the early stages of the excavation. So it's with a high degree of certainty that in the months and years to come, even more great discoveries are going to be announced. These new relics found in the new pits shared a common aesthetic to the other two pits discovered back in 86-87. More gold was discovered, mostly as part of masks, all with the same telltale, supernatural, alien-like faces, as found at the original two sacrificial pits at Sanxingdui. The press that this is getting inside China is quite extensive, and Xinhua, the Global Times, and CGTN are really playing this up. If by chance you never heard of Sanxingdui before, might I suggest... Keep an ear out in the years to come. For Chinese history enthusiasts, this is this is a pretty big deal. It's like the Terracotta Warriors and the Mawangdui Tomb. So you'll be hearing more and more from the authorities at UNESCO, who I'm sure will soon declare these discoveries a World Heritage Site. The good news for anyone wishing to drill down nice and deep is that there is a ton of research that is published in academic papers, and in books. The web is filled with countless videos and images of all these treasures found at the two main museums in Guanghan and Chengdu. I've said it enough times that, because of a lack of written record, we're left guessing about so much. But archaeologists and anthropologists, through careful study and analysis have been able to still learn quite a bit by studying the pottery, religious objects, statues, how they buried their dead, and much is now known about their religion and how they worshipped. So, I hope you were able to get the lay of the land and obtain a halfway decent foundation about Sanxingdui, Jinsha, and ancient Shu. Okay, Hmm, we're running way long. Let's call it a day once again. All the terms for all the Chinese words are at the website at teacup.media. Feel free to donate to this worthy cause or buy a t-shirt, only if you want to support what I'm doing. At the webpage for this episode, you can download a nice PDF of all the Chinese terms. You can print it. Hey, they're suitable for framing, that much I could say. 
Okay, Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from L.A. Thanks, everyone, for 11 years of pure ecstasy. Please do consider coming back in a mere two weeks' time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.